Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Lydia McGrew about the authenticity and historical reliability of the Book of Acts. I interviewed Dr. McGrew earlier this year about her latest book, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels, but some of her earlier works, such as Hidden in Plain View and The Mirror and the Mask, also explore questions related to the trustworthiness of Luke's history of the early church. So the first question I asked Dr. McGrew is how and why she got interested in looking for internal and external clues that point to the historical reliability of the book of Acts. Acts is this wonderful bridge book, I call it. It's a bridge in in two ways. First, it's a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles in the New Testament. And second, it is a bridge geographically between the world of Palestine in which the action of the Gospels take place and the larger Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire. So in both of those ways, Acts brings us over into a wider world, both theologically and geographically, and it is written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. So we can view this author, Luke, as sort of he's got his hand on Jesus on the one hand and his other hand on the Apostle Paul on the other hand. Yeah. And so he's putting this all together for us. And therefore, the question becomes rather urgent. What kind of person was Luke, this author? What kind of author was he? I think there's a tendency not to think strongly enough about authors as personalities mm-hmm. and uh, not to say enough, you know, who was this person? What was he like? And that's something that's a big emphasis of my own work to learn about the character of the author from his work. And I, I think once we appreciate that concerning Acts, it really casts a lot of positive light on the Gospel of Luke. Exactly. So, for example, when we 
read the resurrection account in Luke 24. Should we think he was the kind of author to embellish that? Should we think he was the kind of author to change that, say, oh, I'm going to move this from Galilee to Jerusalem, or oh, I'm going to make up what the angel said at the tomb, or something of that kind. I'm going to put these events on a day when they didn't happen. Or is he the kind of author to have consulted carefully eyewitness sources and to have asked them questions and written down faithfully what they told him in a very conscientious historical manner. And so that's why it's important. Acts is a clue to all of these things. And so what you're saying is we look through various internal and external pieces of evidence that corroborate what Luke says in Acts, where he can be tested, he shows himself to be a very reliable historian And that gives us reason to trust where he can't be tested in both things that he says in Acts and in the Gospels. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my husband, Tim, and I wrote an article uh, in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And we emphasized that the gospel accounts of the resurrection represent what the witnesses themselves actually claimed. So we didn't go in there and go, these are the word of God. We're going to just assume they're true. But we said, if these represent what the witnesses claimed, what's the best explanation of that? So when you get the idea that the author of the Gospel of Luke, who was also the author of Acts, was a guy to tie himself to what eyewitnesses actually claimed, then this helps to support the idea that that account is what those witnesses said. They said Jesus could eat with them. They said he invited them to touch him. They said that he talked to them for a long time and so forth. Wow, you know, what's the best explanation of that? So that ends up being important, that tie-in to eyewitness testimony for the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, and furthermore, I mean, the very opening of Luke's gospel starts off by Luke admitting to his patron Theophilus that this is a collection of carefully presented evidence from the eyewitnesses, and the amassing of this information in this gospel, this text, can give Theophilus certainty. So the whole idea of using evidence for the faith That can't be wrong if you just read the prologue of Luke. (laughs) That's correct. That is not anachronistic. This is so important for us to realize that uh, the idea of telling the truth and those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, as you say, which is right there in the prologue to Luke, this is not something we're imposing upon the Gospels a couple of thousand years later that was alien to them because they were from ancient times and so forth. Actually, it's intrinsic to what Luke is attempting to do. Okay, so now in your book, you say that the book of Acts is a goldmine of evidence for the truth of Christianity that is not always fully appreciated. Acts is the only first century source that we have that claims to include speeches given by the apostles themselves during the very first days of the founding of Christianity. If these are accurate records, you say, of the substance of what was said, then they show that the apostles testified from the beginning to Jesus' physical resurrection and claim to be eyewitnesses to this fact. Right. It's very direct. And I I appreciate that. I, I think it's a good thing to get the most direct arguments that we can, even if they're not the most popular arguments. Mm-hmm. So instead of going uh, in a more roundabout manner, well, it appears that the Gospels indicate that they believed in some kind of a physical resurrection, you right. know, this kind of tentative thing. Instead, we could say, well, here's what, you know, they allegedly said. So that's a very direct kind of confirmation for the early testimony of the alleged witnesses to the resurrection. So then the question 
is whether this account is genuine or not. And what you're saying is that we don't just have to take a leap of faith here and assume that Axe is genuine from the get-go. A close examination of the internal evidence demonstrates that this book is the real McCoy rather than some form of historical fiction purporting to tell the story of Peter, Paul, and others. Yes, or even partial historical fiction, both internal and external evidence, I think shows that it's uh, completely what I call reportage. Uh, and I, I just mean by that that it's the author's not making anything up. He, he's really reporting reliably and factually all the way through. So what about the person who listening to this who says, yeah, but the Bible is the word of God. Of course, we can trust it. Well, I do believe that Acts is the word of God, but I also am a very strong evidentialist as an apologetic approach. And in my apologetic approach, I definitely want to be defending things in ways that are historical from the ground up, because as the scholar Leon Morris put it, God has preferred to reveal himself in the historical, and it is there that we must find him. So God did not fear to trust himself to history, and we shouldn't either. We should be willing to bring those facts of history very strongly to bear. And what I like to do is to give people confidence that those facts do support the truth of Christianity in an evidential way. Yeah. So basically, the person who says, I believe in this or that sacred book, the question is, how do you convince others? Yes, it claims to be the Word of God, but if you're going to convince me, a non-believer, I need to know that this is more than a fictional story. And what you're saying is, when you compare the text with history, it matches up to be the thing it claims to be. And then from that vantage point, we can then go to the next level and say, this is actually God working in history. This is the inspired word of God. Yeah, exactly. I would approach it in that kind of what might seem an indirect way, but it's a, in a way that I think is ultimately very strong. Believers themselves have doubts too. Right. You know, I think all believers go through times of doubt yeah. when they say, well, I'm not feeling it right now. You know, I'm not feeling the spirit leading me to see this as the inspired word of God. And mm -hmm. so at those points, having that tie, that strong tie down, I think can be very strengthening to the believer himself. Or also the children of believers, you know, they're raised in a Christian home where they assume this to be the Word of God, but then they see that television documentary special about the life of Jesus, or they take a class from a liberal college professor, and then all of a sudden, their entire faith has been undermined because they've been given a picture that was never addressed in their churches or in their home that all this stuff is fan fiction. Right, or that you're just believing it because it's what you were taught. Right. And we can believe things that were taught, and that's fine if it's really true. Yes. The question isn't how strong I believe it. The question is how reliable is the thing in which I'm believing? Yes, exactly. And that's what you're focusing on is the objectivity of our faith. That's correct. Yes, because you don't want any young person to say, well, I just believe this because it's what I've been taught. Right. It's the only reason because then you get this, if you'd been raised in a Muslim country, you'd be a Muslim. If you'd been raised in a Hindu country, you'd be a Hindu and so forth. And it's uh, not a good thing for people to feel that that's unanswerable. So let's jump right in by starting with a few examples from Acts chapter one. In verse 12, we read that the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Why do you think this verse is significant? Well, it's, it is interesting because that phrase, the Sabbath day's journey, is something that a, a Jew 
would understand because they were only allowed to travel a certain distance um, on the Sabbath. You know, obviously you had to be able to walk around a little bit, like even just to get to the synagogue or whatever. But the prohibition on work was supposed to prevent you from making some big, long walk. And so it's this very casual sort of Jewish reference that shows his great familiarity with the original Jewish context of Christianity. Yeah, I think in the if you look at the Mishnah, basically a Sabbath day's journey ends up being something like 3,000 feet or so, which turns out to be accurate in terms of the distance between Jerusalem and the area there on the Mount of Olives. So we have the kind of language that was in use in the days when Jerusalem was still around and accurate information about the geography and the, and the land. Right. And Jesus had friends, of course, Lazarus and Mary and Martha whose home was in Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. Other side of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives right. as well. In fact, I think it's, I even read something in the Mishnah that the city of Bethpage, which is also there near Bethany on the Mount of Olives, was basically where the priests lived. And that's why they lived there. So they could go back and forth to the temple and do all their work there because they had to be able to walk on the Sabbath. And so what we see here is that this doesn't appear to be something made up. This gives Luke a little bit of credibility here because he's using language that makes sense with the time and the place. Yeah, it would be like a bedroom community, you might call it. Yeah, right. Now, in verse 15 of chapter 1, 15 and following, the apostles meet to discuss a replacement for Judas. And in verse 18, we're told that this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. So now, as you're no doubt aware, various critics of the Bible over the centuries have argued that this passage contradicts what we find in Matthew 27, verse 8, which says that Judas hanged himself. Do you think that these two passages can be reconciled? Yes, I definitely do. In fact, something that uh, Peter J. Williams pointed out when debating skeptic Bart Ehrman was that when it says right here that falling headlong, he burst open, that's obviously not just tripping. I mean, if you just trip over a rock and fall, your bowels are not all going to gush out, right? Good point. So he says already we're looking for some kind of a height. That was how Williams put it. And of course, Matthew provides a height that he was hanging, you know, presumably from some kind of a height. So in a sense, you could almost regard them as as fitting together more than they contradict one another. So something that's been brought up is, you know, that possibly his body rotted. I mean, this is a warm climate. And that if the rope broke or there was a storm and the tree limb blew down or something, then his body could have burst open there from a height. You know, they're definitely reconcilable. And I don't even think it's all that big of a deal to reconcile them. The other thing is it's the same name for the field, of course. But what seems to be clear is that Luke isn't copying. He's not borrowing from the language of Matthew because it does require a little bit of work. Yes. Uh, and if, if Luke was borrowing from Matthew, he wouldn't have said it this way. Absolutely. And I pointed this out similarly with some of the undesigned coincidences. But as you say, Luke and Matthew both refer to the same field there in Jerusalem as the field of blood. And Luke is the only one who gives the Aramaic form of that name. So there seems to be this corroboration, both independent of each other, names this field in Jerusalem. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this, Lydia, is the fact that the way Matthew reveals the name of this field, in his text, he says, therefore, because of what Judas had done, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
Mm-hmm. And what's odd about that is, according to Josephus, you know, the entire city has been so utterly destroyed by AD 70 that, quote, there was nothing left to make visitors believe it had ever been inhabited. You know, that was actually the fulfillment, if you recall from a prophecy in Micah, which said, uh, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem mm-hmm. shall become a heap of ruins. So, you know, if after AD 70, the entire city of Jerusalem had become like a plowed field, why would Matthew say that the place is called the field of blood to this day? It sounds like he was writing at a time when A, (laughs) the field was still able to be distinguished by its surroundings, and B, that there were still people living there who were calling it by this name. So in my view, this is just another piece of evidence that points to a pre-70 dating for Matthew's gospel. What do you think? Oh, I, I agree with you. And I, I think there's lots of evidence for a, a pre-70 dating for Matthew's gospel. I think that at least three out of four of the gospels are pre-70 and possibly John as well. Possibly John. Well, well I'll keep working on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it this way. John's gospel is certainly from a person who is pre-70. And to me, the person is what it's all about. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his famous speech at the temple on the day of Pentecost. And this is the first of many speeches that appear throughout the book. In your book, The Mirror or the Mask, you have a chapter dedicated to addressing the question as to whether we can trust the speeches of what we find in historical books, since many historians claim that these are often inventions of the historian himself. But in that chapter, you provide evidence that Luke was a reliable speech recorder. Can you go into that? Yeah. So in the time in which the Gospels were written, there were historians who did make up speeches. Tacitus did, and Josephus for sure did. These were opportunities to show off. When they did it, it was this sort of a rhetorical exercise. Mm -hmm. We do not find that these speeches and acts appear even remotely to be like that, like rhetorical exercises. On the contrary, one of the things that we find that's so cool is the differences between them. And in The Mirror or the Mask, I specifically talk about the work of a 19th century scholar named J.S. Housen, contrasting specifically two speeches by Paul that are in his account in Acts 22 that he gives to a Jewish crowd about how he became a Christian and his account that he gives to Agrippa and Festus several chapters later. These are very strikingly different, even though they're both attributed to Paul, and they're different in ways that would be appropriate to the setting and would be very difficult to fake. So, Mm. for example, Paul presents himself to the Jews. He tries to present his Jewish credentials all the time. He talks about his education under Gamaliel. When he talks about Ananias, who came to him, a Christian in Damascus, he doesn't call him a follower of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He says that he was a man who was devout by the standard of the law. So he's Mm -hmm. emphasizing even Ananias's Jewishness. And then in contrast, before Agrippa and Festus, well, he leaves out Ananias. They're not going to care about some obscure guy in, in Damascus. And then he emphasizes at the outset that his opponents are Jewish before Agrippa and Festus. Uh, This is not something he's being coy about because he's not trying to appeal to a Jewish crowd. And then one of these little touches that I just love, when he's speaking to Agrippa and Festus and he talks about the voice from heaven that spoke to him on the road to Damascus, he said that it spoke in a Hebrew dialect. Now, this is an implication that he's speaking to Agrippa and Festus in something other than 
a Hebrew dialect. But back in Acts 22, it specifically says that when he turned and spoke to the crowd, he spoke to the crowd in a Hebrew dialect. So then he's not going to emphasize that the voice spoke in a Hebrew dialect because he already is speaking in that himself. So these are beautiful little touches that show that Luke had very close access to what Paul actually said. I believe he may have been present for both speeches. So that really shows his care uh, and that he is not showing off as a rhetorician or making up stuff and just putting it into somebody's mouth. And I think we'll see that also in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 as well, that it has those little touches of realism that are very difficult to fake. You know, one thing before we get to Peter, just one more thing from Paul, and that's, you know, if you think about a text like uh, Acts 17, I mean, everywhere, Paul is very, very aware of his audience. As he's there in Athens, he's referencing the things meaningful to the Athenians, the statue to an unknown god, their own poetry. He's not interacting with um, Old Testament texts because this is not something with which they're familiar. But when you look at his synagogue speeches, he's definitely interacting with the Jewish believers with their texts. So he's always very aware of his audience. And it seems like what you're pointing out here is consistent throughout his ministry. And Luke accurately records that. Correct. Paul says, I've become all things to all men. Right. And that's the Paul that we know from the epistles. So now when it comes to evaluating the content of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, you know, I think we can find a lot of information about Jesus and about what happened in those early years. We're told in verse 22, a, that Jesus was from Nazareth and was widely known to be a wonder worker. In verse 23, he was delivered up by the Jewish authorities and crucified. In verses 24 and following, Luke tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead, which is a fact foretold in the scriptures and seen by eyewitnesses. In verse 36, he is called both Lord and Christ in Peter's sermon there. And in verse 38, as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, Peter goes on to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. So when you step back and look at the body here of Peter's sermon and all the various facts that it contains, again, if Luke is shown to be a reliable witness, this here is really important information for historical Jesus work, right? Oh, yeah. And what I find fascinating is that it compares beautifully with what many scholars, whether liberal or conservative, refer to as the earliest Christian creed that Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, because in that creed, you have this idea that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's buried, he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appears to Peter and the Twelve. That's exactly what Peter has been doing in this sermon. I mean, even liberal scholars like John Dominic Crossan and Gerd Ludemann argue that that creed goes back to the early 30s. But your argument, I think, is even stronger. In demonstrating Luke's reliability as a historian and speech recorder, you know, one has reason to trust that the words we find here in Acts 2 actually go further back than the early 30s, but actually to a period less than two months removed from Christ's death. Exactly. And I like to do that. I like to go straight to that for one thing, because we see the context of persecution that, you know, they could have expected to be killed. Yeah. So they're out there presenting this, presenting themselves as witnesses. And we find that they say we have to testify to what we've heard and seen. They say that in chapter three uh, in a context where they are under great threat of death. And that, I think, is an important part of the, uh, the confirmation of the resurrection is that they testified in these detailed ways 
about Jesus within just two months after Jesus was crucified uh, in ways that could have gotten them killed. Why would they do that if it were not true? I would also emphasize a couple of cool little indicators of authenticity right here in those points that you mentioned. For example, he calls Jesus the Nazarene in 2.22. Something that uh, scholar Peter Williams has noted is that in the Gospels, when they refer to Jesus, when the characters, as we might say, the, the people who are actually in the stories, refer to Jesus, they'll usually throw in some other phrase, like Jesus who is called the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. Jesus the Nazarene, etc. Some other phrase, which Jesus, well, why? Because Yeshua, Jesus' name, was a very common name at the time. Right. But if you contrast that with the narrator in the Gospels, the narrator just says Jesus. Why? Well, because as among us now, among the Christians, the narrator is only thinking of one Jesus. Right. Whereas among the people in the stories, they want to know which Jesus you're talking about. And we find exactly that very early language in Acts 2.22, Jesus the Nazarene. He knows they're going to like, who's this Yeshua guy? Some of them have literally just come there from out of town for the Feast of Pentecost. So it's very authentic. He doesn't call him Jesus Christ even, which is more of a Christian title. And then later he says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. That again is the way you'd speak to a Jewish audience. So there are these indicators of authenticity right there in the text of the speech, which shows, I think, that it is a reliable account. So would you agree that the reason why you have this amazing similarity between the structure of Peter's sermon here in Acts and something like the 1 Corinthians 15 Creed is that they both emanate from this very early period in the Jerusalem church? I definitely think that they emanate from the early church. I I myself tend to think that Paul himself may be responsible for the exact wording of that passage in 1 Corinthians. I'm a little different from some other scholars in that regard, but I definitely think that he learned the facts that he recounts there from the very early church and that connection, for example, to the scriptures. So that's why we find that both Paul and Peter use that psalm, you will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Both of them say that, you know, this applies to Jesus, that it's a messianic prophecy. It's very clear that that was something the early church believed very early. And Paul and Peter have both picked up on that. So it's very clear that the early church had certain scriptures in mind. When they said, according to the scriptures, we can often tell which ones they were. Uh, Isaiah 53, for example, or this psalm. So I think that's pretty cool that we see that connection with Paul's teaching as well. Yeah. And then the point that I think is important to make at that juncture is, you know, you go back to the very beginning of prophecy to begin with, where Moses in Deuteronomy 18 is describing the, you know, the future prophets who will come. And how do I know whether this is the true prophet or not? And what he says is, the true prophet is the one that speaks the things that come to pass. Mm. And if they don't come to pass, you should not trust what they say. That's a false prophet. So what you see here is that playing out. You know, here are the eyewitnesses of the things prophesied who are declaring these things came to pass in our own time. We are the ones who are demonstrating, testifying that these events have been fulfilled. I have an article on messianic death prophecies and the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think you see that pretty strongly with um, things like the dicing for Jesus' clothes 
and the uncanny resemblance between Psalm 22 and crucifixion, Mm -hmm. which was not a form of death that David would have been familiar with, I believe, uh, in ancient Jewish time. Yeah, they didn't pierce hands and feet in those days. Exactly. So those things definitely fit in Isaiah 53, you know, it says he's cut off out of the land of the living. And then later it says that he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. Well, which is it? So this seems to point to some kind of a death followed by a resurrection. Uh, you could say that's a, you know, metaphoric or something, but Jesus fulfills it uh, more literally. Yeah. And then he divides spoils, too, in a victory celebration there at the very end. So not a whole lot of people dividing spoils once they're buried. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it definitely seems like a death, burial, and resurrection account in Isaiah 53. But that's the promise that Isaiah makes. And then once the fulfillment happens, it's more, the, I guess this is the thing, it's more than just a weird thing happened one Sunday morning. You know, this strange thing happened on Sunday morning that seems to match all these Old Testament prophecies. And that's the power of the Christian proclamation. Yeah, I think more should be made out of the argument from prophecy. I think we should do more with it, definitely. So now in Acts chapter 3, uh, verse 11, Luke refers to a specific place in the Jerusalem temple known as Solomon's portico. Why do you think that's significant? Well, it was a place where Jesus had liked to walk. And there's a confirmation in John 10, 23. It talks about Jesus walking there during the Feast of the Dedication, which is what we would call Hanukkah. And and it emphasizes that it was winter. So it would be somewhat sheltered. Now, it's not winter at the time in Acts 3. But the interesting thing is that it fits with it being winter. And we have external confirmation of the existence of this portico. Again, this reflects the knowledge of pre-destruction structure, you know, physical structure of the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. Architectural details that are confirmed by other sources, like in Josephus, he refers to this same portico. Knowledge about what the temple was like stops at 70 AD because it was destroyed. So this is a good indication that they have eyewitness material. Yeah. We even have later on in Acts a mention of some stairs that when Paul's back in Jerusalem, he has to be carried, you know, away from a mob that's trying to kill him. And it says they, you know, they lifted him, carried him up the stairs. And those appear to be the stairs to the fortress of Antonia, this fortress that allowed them to look down into the temple and see when a riot was beginning. So, I mean, that's like, if possible, an even more obscure architectural fact about the city of Jerusalem. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, Now, in Acts 5, we're told of a man by the name of Gamaliel, who is a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Was this character invented by Luke, or is this a real historical person corroborated from other sources? Oh, he he definitely is. Gamaliel I, not to be confused with Gamaliel II, who I believe was his grandson. Yeah. Um, And the Mishnah said, when Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder died, the glory of the Torah ceased uh, in the Mishnah. Well-known character. Yep. Very important. And he actually appears and speaks in one little consultation they're having in Acts. Now, you know, of course, you can say, well, it's easy enough to just bring in a well-known person in a historical novel or something. But again, this is one of those subtle facts that Paul brings up when he is emphasizing his own Jewishness later in Acts 22. So again, he was proud of having been a rabbinic student of Gamaliel. And this appears to have actually been true of the historical Paul. Now, when it comes to like referencing historical persons, what would be the problem for a forger to try to make it look like it's real history by placing names of actual historical characters like Amaliel, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea? What would be one of the problems with that kind of approach? 
Well, you could easily get things wrong, you know, about the person. One of the interesting things is that we find that they're often placing these smaller things in there, and those are the even harder things to get right. So I think that we find a mix of major characters and minor people and then minor facts that all fit together. And that's what you'd expect to find in real history. Notice, for example, that Luke doesn't recount a conversation between Paul and Nero. You know, Nero was the emperor. If he was just making stuff up, he could have said, oh, here's what happened when Paul appeared before Nero. But he doesn't make any attempt to do that. Yeah. And furthermore, if this is made up, why aren't there any refutations? Not a single refutation anywhere. We do know that there was a mass conversion by the end of the first century. Well, even in the middle, we'll get to this soon about the number of Jews there in Rome. A lot of people were converting over this period from 30 to the end of the first century. So something had to be converting them. (laughs) But if the story that they're being told is bunk, then shouldn't there be some kind of definite refutation of the claim? I think that that relates to things like the empty tomb, for example, that if, you know, if Jesus' body were still in the tomb, you would think they would have dragged something forth and at least said, you know, here it is. Yeah. We have it. And now in Acts 11, we're told that a man named Agabus foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. According to Luke, this took place in the days of Claudius. Can this claim be verified from external sources? There were several, uh, there were a number of famines during this period, and the most probable one here did take place in Syria, as the region was known as, and it was so severe that a queen named Queen Helena actually sent relief, and Josephus thanks her. Uh, She came from an area that would be, I believe, modern Kurdistan, Mm. that far away. She was a queen and sent relief to that region. So this would have maybe been, as Colin Hemer dates it, a year or two before, but that would make sense that the prophecy would come prior to the actual famine, and there could have been problems already beginning in Egypt because Egypt was the granary of the Roman world. And so, you know, any famine that's going to affect Palestine would often affect Egypt first, especially if it concerned the wheat trade. So this could have already been starting and Agabus is foretelling this to tell them to send assistance. Do you think that um, this might also relate to what we talked about last week with uh, Paul's taking up of a collection for the assistance of the saints in Jerusalem? Paul did that more than once. The collection that I talked about there is actually in the later chapters of Acts and probably would have been in the 50s. Now, there wasn't just one famine. I mean, things continue to be rough. And that need of the saints might have not just been a famine, but might have been a persecution driven. We do find Paul bringing famine relief in Acts 11. And, And that's just all contained right there, you know, in Acts 11. This is one of his trips to Jerusalem that's actually recorded in Acts. So he went and brought aid to Jerusalem on more than one occasion. Interesting. Now in Acts 18, we read that Aquila had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Here's another reference to the emperor Claudius who uh, reigned from 41 to 54. Uh, So can this claim that he banished all the Jews from Rome be corroborated from external sources? Yeah, we have uh, Suetonius mentioning that Claudius banished all the Jews from Rome 
and that they were making disturbances. And then there's different translations of this on account of or the instigation of Crestus, which might be a reference to some kind of anti-Christian rioting in Rome. But either way, Claudius got fed up with it and he banished the Jews from Rome and Aquila and Priscilla came. We find also confirmation later in the epistles of Paul, where he's writing to Rome. And by that time, Priscilla and Aquila have returned to Rome. And he says, please greet them. So it looks like they kept their property there. And then later they were allowed to go back. So that's kind of cool. After Claudius' ban had, as it were, had lapsed later on, it wasn't in force anymore. They were able to go back. You know, I love the uh, the idea that the Crestus there refers to Christ, you know, because Crestus was like a, a common Latin name. So at one point, Tertullian actually says, you guys keep saying Crestus, it's actually Christus. <laughs> and so if you look throughout the book of Acts, what do you see again and again and again? You see commotion in synagogues all surrounding the person of Jesus. Well, not just in synagogues, but in other places. Yeah, because other riots and stuff. This would uh, argue that, of course, that Christianity had already spread to Rome, but that may well be true. Yeah, and that would make sense because this is what we see with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who are already believers. They leave Rome, they're already believers, and then they're linking up and becoming associates with Paul. Yes, good point, that they they seem to have heard of Jesus before. And from Acts chapter 2, in addition to the Jewish diaspora from all the different parts of the world, there were residents there from Rome as well. So some of them went back to Rome and you had people bringing back the news about Jesus. Yeah, entirely possible. All right. So in Acts chapter 18, we find a reference to this uh, proconsul of Achaia, a man by the name of Gallio. Paul is brought before this proconsul. What do we know about him from history? He was the brother of Seneca who is a famous character from Roman history. And he was definitely the proconsul sometime between 51 and 52. And we, we have a letter actually from Claudius writing about him uh, and talking about receiving his advice. This is called the Gallio inscription, and it enables us to date his proconsulship quite precisely. And this is a super important, crucial point for dating the events in Acts because Paul is in Corinth at this point. Okay, in Corinth, Achaia is in Greece, and that's where he is. And so we know this exact year when he's in Achaia in Corinth, then we can sort of date his ministry, sort of looking backwards and looking forwards from that point in Acts. Yeah. And it's such a narrow window, too, that he was the proconsul. He's only served there for a year. And Paul is there at exactly that time, and they get the exact date and the exact name correct. So, again, just the mark of authenticity just rings through. Another mark of authenticity there is that they try to riot and Gallio is completely unconcerned. Gallio says, um, you know, this is nothing to do with your Jewish laws and stuff. Never mind. Basically, don't bother me. And they actually beat somebody in front of him. And he just he says, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm not interested. And that was the attitude that the Roman authorities took. They considered this to be a sort of an internecine Jewish squabble. If it turned into a really big riot, they liked things to be orderly. Actually, that comes up in Ephesus. The town clerk tells the Ephesians, don't riot. We're going to be called in question for this. The Romans liked things to be kept quiet, but evidently Gallio wanted them to just calm down. What he was not going to do was to give a judgment because that would have been a judgment on a subject of religion, which he just considered completely outside of his purview. Yeah. So what's this right you're mentioning in Ephesus? 
So in Acts 19, Paul has been in the city of Ephesus for a while, and the makers of statues to the goddess Diana or Artemis start a riot against Paul because they're losing money because he's bringing converts to to Jesus. And so then they're now buying statues of the goddess and it takes an anti-Semitic turn. And what's interesting is this riot scene is literally filled over and over and over again with these little confirmations of the accuracy of Acts in the very words. And when you go to Cohen Hemer's book on the book of Acts, you find it mentioning again and again, this is confirmed in the inscriptions, confirmed in the inscriptions. So I'm just going to go through some of these. Bing, bing, bing. Okay. The great goddess Artemis over and over again in this passage, verse 27, 28, 34, 37. This is attested in inscriptions that that was the correct way they referred to her, the great goddess Artemis. The city clerk stands up to calm them down. Well, that city clerk, the name is Grammateus, and that is the correct title. Again, attested by inscriptions. One thing I want to emphasize is there was no way for Luke to look these up. Right. I really want to emphasize this. They didn't have Wikipedia or Google in those days. Correct. (laughs) Or Alexa. You know, you can't say, hey, Alexa, who would calm the crowd down if there were a riot in Ephesus? And the way my husband, Tim, likes to put this is Acts gets hard things right. Hemer calls this specific pieces of local knowledge. Another thing is he uses, the town clerk uses the phrase, we are the guardian of the temple. Well, that was actually a phrase testified in inscriptions. So on point after point after point, cultural and terminological, the scene of the riot bears the marks of an eyewitness. I would suspect that as Paul's companion, Luke actually was an eyewitness of this riot. Yeah. It certainly has the ring of truth, especially when you just look at the wording, the the word choices themselves again and again and again, confirmed by inscriptions. He was there and he witnessed it with his eyes. Now, in Acts 23 and 24, Paul is imprisoned in Jerusalem under the Roman governor Felix, who is then replaced by a new governor named Festus. Are these men historical figures? Yes, they definitely are. Felix was not very well liked. And he was considered to be rather brutal and harsh. There's a little fact that Luke gives about Felix that his wife was named Drusilla and that she was a Jewess. This is separately attested by Josephus as well. Yeah. And if you look at the information Josephus records, basically Felix's reign comes to an end in around 59 AD and then Festus begins that year. But that's basically the time we're talking about, which in which Paul was supposed to have been there in Jerusalem, right? It definitely can be. I mean, I have to say, this is what we might call a dialogue that takes place between acts in history. So you could go both ways. You can say, well, can this be made compatible with what we know of their reigns? And also then we can say, if we take Luke to be telling the truth about who was ruling, then what year would this have been? Um, and so we're constantly doing that kind of back and forth and back and forth. And we find that we certainly can make a completely believable and coherent chronology of the ministry of Paul in these years by fitting it with the facts. Yeah. Now, finally, in Acts 25, we're told there that Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea with great pomp in order to sit at Paul's trial. Uh, You just mentioned Drusilla. My reading of Josephus is that both Drusilla and Bernice were Agrippa's older sisters. So a lot of people, you know, as you look at this scene here in Acts 25, you think that Agrippa is coming in here with his wife. Actually, they're brother and sister. And in fact, there were rumors in the empire that they had an incestuous relationship. And 
Josephus, uh, again, he fills in more of the details for us. You know, this is Agrippa II, who is not the same one that we find earlier in the book of Acts. He is probably only 30 years old around this time. And after the fall of Jerusalem, that same Bernice actually fell in love with Titus and then went off to Rome and lived with Titus in his palace for some time. So we're dealing here with actual historical figures. Again and again, you just look through Tacitus and Suetonius and Josephus, and it compares very well with what we read here in Acts, doesn't it? Yeah, and the fact that she's his consort, whatever you want to call her, if you know whether you want to go with the rumors that she was having a love affair with him or her own brother or whatever, she travels with him. Right. And so that's a note of reality and authenticity in Acts that, you know, when Agrippa II shows up, he's got Bernice with him. Yeah. They're traveling around together. That definitely fits. And so then... Festus wants to ask advice. And so he has Paul come and speak to both him and Agrippa together. And that's where we get that speech that we talked about earlier with its own marks of being authentically delivered to that audience. Yeah, this is the same Agrippa who says to Paul after Paul gives a speech, would you so quickly try to convert me to become a Christian? <laughs> and, and then Paul says, yes, yes. You know, I would that they all, you know, except for these chains were like me. There's another interesting confirmation here in Acts 20. Uh, when they're going to Jerusalem, this is Paul is traveling to Jerusalem for the last time before he is arrested. And it specifically says in verses 13 to 14, we going ahead, this is one of those we passages, to the ship set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And it's, it's clear they're leaving from Troas, if you back up a little bit. So they're going from Troas to Assos. And Troas is basically uh, ancient Troy. It may have been, um, but we certainly can locate it now. And it's on the coast of what would now be thought of as Turkey and was then thought of as Asia Minor, but right near the crossover to Macedonia. Yep. And so they're sailing essentially south, more or less south. So you might say to yourself, how can this ship go and then pick Paul up if he's walking. Can't a ship sail faster than Paul can walk? Yeah. It's a little bit puzzling. But when you go and you actually look up the geography, you find that the ship had to double a cape, then known as Cape Lectum, now known as Cape Baba. And so because the ship was going out and doubling around the cape, taking a much longer route, the distance from Troas to Assos as the crow flies is about 20 miles. So Paul just felt like taking a Walk. He walks from Troas to Assos across that cape, hmm. and the ship doubles the cape and comes around and picks him up. That is just this marvelous little bit of geographical realism yeah. that you would not know if you had not actually traveled to that location at that time. Exactly. You know, again and again, I find the realism, you know, if you look on a map in terms of they went from place A to place B to place C, on a map, it's easy to see that that's the correct line. If you're taking this journey from Jerusalem to Achaia, for example, you chart the cities, it all matches up geographically. It does. And even more, if you read, I can't encourage people enough. I know it's a scholarly book, but to get hold of Hemer's Book of Acts in the setting of Hellenistic history, I find that when I sit down and I read the section called, I believe it's Other Types of Knowledge in Acts, my faith is strengthened just sitting there reading that section page after page after page. He even talks about the winds and what the winds would have been at a certain time of year and how those winds at that time of year would have caused them to 
to have to go this way and around an island that way or that kind of thing. And it's, it's just beautiful. So not only does the order of the cities fit, but even the time of year fits and even the way the winds and the shipping would have gone. One more before you wrap up here. In Acts 27, Paul is on his journey to Rome as a prisoner. There was a man named Smith of Jordan Hill. He was a, a wealthy sailor in the 19th century. And he wrote a little book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul, where he noted all of the bits of knowledge about ships and voyaging hmm. that you find in the book of Acts from this whole voyage to Rome. And he talked about how these, however, seem to be told by a landlubber. In other words, with someone who was really on the voyage and really saw these things, huh. but didn't know what to make of them. For example, in Acts 27, 28, it says they were taking soundings because the ship didn't want to run aground. It's the correct word for taking soundings and the actual soundings that are taken at that point are realistic Interesting, because it says what they found the soundings to be as they're getting closer and closer to land. In Acts 27, 29, they're in a storm and it says they cast anchors from the stern. And you might think that's terrible. Why would you do that? You would cast anchors from the back of the boat. But Smith of Jordan Hill has noted that would be the proper emergency action, though it would be unusual to try to prevent the ship from swinging broadside to the waves and being smashed stern first on the rock. So that's huh. what they really would have done in an emergency. And Luke, he's on that voyage. They're about to be shipwrecked. He doesn't know why they do this, but he writes down what they actually do. He's just describing what's happening. He's just describing what's happening. Well, you've been hearing from Dr. Lydia McGrew, author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. Dr. McGrew, thanks for being with us again for this program as we've been exploring both the internal and external evidence for the authenticity of the Book of Acts. Thank you so much for having me, Shane. It's been a lot of fun. Well, folks, if you'd like to explore today's topic a little further, I've recently written an article titled, Can We Trust Luke's History of the Early Jesus Movement?, which you can find in the show notes, along with links to order books by Dr. Lydia McGrew and others. Ever since the Golgotha episode aired a few months back, many of you have expressed interest in joining me for a listener tour of Israel. Well, I've been doing some research, and I'm currently making plans for such a tour in the fall of 2024. I'll be sending information about this both to my free and paid subscribers, so if you're not yet a subscriber to my Substack site, now is the time to sign up at HumbleSkeptic.com. Right now, I'm also making arrangements for an apologetics event here in the St. Louis area, featuring Greg Kokel, Jeremy Smith, and myself. The tentative date for this event will be the first weekend of this coming April, so mark that on your calendars, and I'll send more information about this in coming months. As always, The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast, and I could really use your help. To support this work, you can upgrade to a paid subscription via Substack, or you can simply put a little something in the tip jar. You can find links for both of these options in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Our lives.